4: Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF or F O F Friends on Fridays. This Friday we will broadcast John Zipper's Week to Week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipper.
3: I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. My name is Hazen Jehu. It is my pleasure to introduce Robert Rice, Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at UC Berkeley and best-selling author of Saving Capitalism for the Many, Not Just the Few. Professor Rice served in three national administrations and was the Secretary of Labor in the Clinton Administration. He serves as the Chair of Common Sense and Senior Fellow at the Bloom Center for Developing Economies. He is also the co-founder-editor of the American Prospect magazine and is a frequent guest on NPR's Marketplace. In 2003, Robert was awarded the prestigious Vaclav Havel Vision Foundation Prize for his pioneering work in economic and social thought. In 2008, Time magazine named him one of the 10 most affected cabinet secretaries of the 20th century, and Wall Street Journal placed him sixth on the list of the most influential business thinkers. His film, Inequality for All, won the U.S. Documentary Special Jury Award for Achievement in Filmmaking at the 2013 Sundance Film Festival. Professor Rice graduated with honors from Dartmouth College and received his law degree from Yale Law School. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Robert Rice.
2: Thank you. Well, thank you, Hazen, and thank all of you. Uh, as you can see, uh, the economy uh, has worn me down. Really, before the uh, Great Recession, I was—you uh, know—I was six foot two, and it's just—it's uh, great to see all of you tonight. Uh, and what, what we're going to do, I'm, I'm going to uh, summarize my entire book and my life's work in 20 minutes. And then uh, Judge Cordell is going to come up and uh, ask me some questions. And then you are going to participate in questions. And uh, we promise to get you out of here in an hour. Oh, but then you're going to buy my book. <laughs> and I'm going to sign it for you. Uh, This is, I've been on a book tour, and uh, I just came back from three weeks in uh, the Midwest, mostly in red states, in red cities. Uh, And you might say to yourself, well, now, why was that? Why did he do that? And I did it because I tell my students every year at Berkeley. Any uh, Cal grads here? (laughs) Go Bears. Uh, I tell my students every year at Berkeley that the best way to learn is to talk to somebody who disagrees with you. Uh, and all of us are too often in our bubbles, and we don't really talk to people who disagree with us. And so I thought the best way of learning for me would to turn my book tour into a little bit of a, a tour through Red City, Red State America. And it was, uh, it was interesting. For one thing, uh, nobody liked the, the title of my new book, which is Saving Capitalism. Uh, because they, they, were, they were kind of uh, annoyed. They said, it sounds like you're being critical. What's wrong with capitalism? Uh, it's interesting, because I got back to Berkeley just a few days ago, and nobody liked the title of my book. <laughs> because they said, why do you want to save it? <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a title that works nowhere completely, antagonizes everybody. Uh, but uh, I think realistically, and what I have said uh, on this book tour to audiences in the heartland is uh, is pretty much what I'll say to you tonight. And that is that uh, realistically, we have to we have to understand that capitalism is not working as it might work uh, to improve the well-being of most people. Uh, some people in this audience, judging from your looks, and, uh, and also the color of your hair, remember a time in American history uh, that I remember, uh, and that is uh, the first 30 years after the Second World War. Uh, we had a very different economy in those years, an economy in which uh, as productivity improved and as the economy grew, everybody, just about everybody's income increased in tandem with the growth of the economy, even the bottom 20%. In fact, between 1946 and 1980, if you were in the bottom fifth, bottom 20% uh, by income, uh, you actually, your income dr- increased on average faster than the people in the top 20%. So we were actually moving toward a greater, more, more egalitarian, more inclusive society. Now obviously, we're not gonna, uh, nobody wants and it would be inappropriate, it would be inefficient to have complete equality, because if you have complete equality, where do you get incentives to invent and innovate? That's not the issue. The the issue really is do you have a society and an economy uh, in which everybody has an equal opportunity to succeed and in which the fruits of economic prosperity are as widely shared as possible? And we were doing that in the first three decades after the Second World War. Uh, we did it partly because we invested like mad in education and in infrastructure. You remember in California, now I'm, I'm a relative newcomer to California, I got out here 10 years ago, uh, but California had a reputation of being the best in terms of K through 12 education. The University of California system was the crown jewel, the shining light, but the entire California system of public education was the envy of not only the country, but the world. Uh, well, we can get into what's happened since, but it was also investments in infrastructure, uh, in everything from freeways to uh, in the environment, to energy, to uh, pipes and, uh, and, 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 and water systems. And, I mean, the infrastructure investments we made were extraordinary. Uh, And we also, at the same time, paid for a lot of this uh, through our taxes. And taxes nobody really complained about. Well, everybody always complains about taxes. But, I mean, it wasn't as if we felt terribly oppressed, uh, although the top tax rate, the top marginal tax rate, uh, was never between 1940, the end of the war, let's say 1946 to 1980, uh, was never below 70%. The top marginal tax rate, and under Dwight Eisenhower, who remember was a Republican, uh, the top marginal tax rate got to be 91%. Now, the effective rate, Now again, we're talking about top marginal tax rate, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but the effective rate was below that, but it was still the top effective rate after all the deductions, after all the tax credits, was still quite significantly above 50%. And then we also had so many people who were becoming more prosperous that you had their taxes as well. So you, had, you didn't have run big budget deficits. We had a lot of public investment. It was paid for. Uh, we also, at the same time, had an economy that was very innovative. Uh, we did not have Wall Street, by the way. Finance was not nearly as large a part of the economy. In those years, in fact, finance was pretty boring. Uh, nobody I knew went into. I don't. I don't want to insult anybody here. If you're a, a, from finance, that's great. I I admire you, and and you're great. <laughs> uh, but I'm. I just want to say that that the, that the finance was pretty boring in those years, and uh, and people you know did not necessarily aspire to go to Wall Street or to go into finance. They wanted to do. They wanted to do other things. Uh, And the National Defense Highway Act, the National Defense Education Act, we we, we actually justified a lot of our public investments in terms of competition with the Soviet Union. Well, we don't have the Soviet Union any longer. But after 1980, 1981, 92, something profoundly changed. No longer did the... Median wage or the wages of most people continue to to go up with overall growth and innovation and productivity gains? No. In fact, uh, the median wage started to stagnate. Adjusted for inflation, the median wage went nowhere. Now, average wages went up. And this is some confusion that some people have. When I say average and median, they mean different things. Average wage went up. Median wage flattened out. I mean, the best example I know to give you is that Shaquille O'Deal, the basketball player, and right. I have an average height of six foot one. Now, because, you know, see, the average, that, I mean, I, I, I use that example because the average pulls up. Uh, the, uh, you know, it, it just keeps, it gives you an artificial view of what's really happened. It doesn't tell you what's happened to the little guy. And that's why the median is a, is a better measure. And beginning in 1980, 81, 82, the median wage really started to stagnate, even though the economy kept on growing. Even though productivity kept on growing. Uh, we stopped investing quite as much as a percentage of GDP, the total economy, in education or in infrastructure. Uh, we had major tax cuts. We can debate whether those were good or bad. Uh, the day before yesterday, I had a, a big debate, a big public debate, with a dear friend of mine named Arthur Laffer. Some of you know Arthur La- Art Laffer. He's wrong about everything, but he's not here to defend himself. Uh, and, uh, but he, he would disagree with my assessment. But, uh, but he doesn't disagree with the facts. And that is, the fact is, uh, the marginal tax rate plummeted. Uh, we had tax revolts a lot around the country, including California. I think some of those tax revolts, by the way, uh, were partly a reflection of the fact that the median wage just started, was just beginning to flatten out at the end of the 70s. And a lot of people said, particularly working class, middle class people, they said, well, we can't afford to pay taxes, those kinds of taxes, and it's understandable. But as a result of this great U-turn, and it really was a great U-turn that happened uh, at the uh, late seventies, early nineteen eighties, uh, the country began to look different. And I got into, I started, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was a professor, I was in government and out of government, uh, and I started to look at the data. Even when I was uh, Secretary of Labor for Bill Clinton, and it looked very odd, uh, this gap between productivity gains on the one hand, and where the median wage was. By the way, if the economy is almost twice as large as it was in 1980 now, and the median wage is flat, and continues to be relatively flat, adjusted for inflation, where did all the money go? Class. (laughs) Now here's where we get into a delicate subject. Because I, I have been accused of being a class warrior. I am not a class warrior. I'm a class worrier. Do you see? There's a subtle dif- difference. I worry, and what I worry about uh, is as we get to a greater and greater, greater degree of economic inequality, more and more income and wealth concentration at the top, stagnant wages, and then we have at the bottom, we have as much uh, percentage of poverty as we've ever had. We've got about 20% of all of the children in the United States are impoverished. But as we, as we head in more and more in that direction, what I worry about are a couple of things. Number one, I worry about the economy overall. Because without a large, and growing, and buoyant middle-class, you don't just don't have enough purchasing power to keep the economy going. This was a very anemic recovery. Those of you who paid a lot of attention to the recovery, it really wasn't much to write home about. Most Americans do not believe that they were affected by the recovery. And it was an anemic recovery because there wasn't very much purchasing power to keep the economy robust and going because there wasn't that much money in the middle class and the poor. I was visited, by the way, recently by uh, the CEO of a big high-tech company uh, that I shall not give him away or it away, but it's very big. (laughs) Big, big, big. (laughs) Not too far from here. Big. (laughs) Big. Uh, and he wanted to talk about inequality. and uh, and and we and I was, and we talked about for for a couple of hours. and And I finally said, "Well, why are you interested in this subject?" And he said, "Because uh, frankly, I'm concerned about my customer base. Uh, i'm I'm worried that uh, if we continue in the direction we're going, uh, who's going to you know years from now, uh, I may not have the customers that we're counting on."
4: We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays
5: with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to progressivevoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. Progressivevoices.com. Thanks for listening and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community.
1: Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family.
2: Now, why the big U-turn? Well, part of it has to do with a word that has gone from obscurity to meaninglessness without any intervening period of coherence, and that is globalization. And we can talk about that. Uh, But another second reason has to do with technological displacement. And I think that's what the fellow who visited me was most concerned about, because he said, look, uh, we're going to be displacing more and more and more jobs uh, and that means people are not going to either have jobs or they're going to be falling into the local service sector of the economy. Retail and restaurant and hotel and hospital and surface transportation and child care and elder care. And they're just not going to make much money. But either way, uh, who's going to buy? Who's, who's going to be left in terms of technological change? So those are two big factors Responsible for the u-turn, but there is a third factor that I talk about a lot in my latest book And I don't want to be talking too much about it tonight because I don't want to give away the plot (laughs) Uh, But I'll just give you a hint Uh, And that is a political factor and that is that as more and more income and wealth get concentrate gets concentrated at the top uh, and this is not critical, I'm not being critical of anybody, but what happens, and it happened in the 1920s, it happened in the 1890s, it happened in the 1830s, what happens is when you, every time you get a lot of income and wealth concentrated at the top, you get a lot of political power at the top as well. Because income, wealth, and political power all tend to go together. It's not that anybody is behaving badly It's just that, given the structure of a political economy, income, wealth, and power go together. The great jurist, Louis Brandeis, Louis Brandeis, uh, once wrote in the 1920s, he wrote, America has a choice. We can have great wealth in the hands of a few, or we can have a democracy. But we can't have both. And we all know exactly what he means because we're now living through that. The New York Times uh, about three weeks ago had a piece, I don't know how many of you saw it, where 158 people, their families and their businesses, were responsible for a half of all of the campaign contributions to date in leading up to the 2016 election. 158 people, their families and businesses well that kind of political influence has a compounding effect historically it has a compounding effect because what happens is and it's not it's just the, it, it's that when you have that much influence you you tilt the playing field slightly the rules and laws that shape the market become tilted slightly in the direction of what very big corporations and big banks and some wealthy people want. And that compounds itself, because then if it's tilted in their direction, they get even more, and then they have more political power, and then what happens? You get periods of time, and we've had already in this country, three periods of time, where you get these kinds of populist uprisings. People are so angry, they are so frustrated, they've so had it, that what happens is you get this anti-establishment surge. Now this time it's called Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, Ben Carson, I don't care who they are, we've had it before in America. And I'm not saying it's good or bad, it just is real. The anger out there cannot be disguised any longer. All the way through the last three weeks, when I'm in the Midwest, and I'm in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'm in St. Louis, and Cincinnati, and Kansas City, and Missouri, all, all the way, and, and, Iowa, and Iowa City, and Des Moines, everywhere I went. People are angry. And that anger can lead to some mischief. Because populism is not always constructive. It can be constructive. It can lead to reform. But it can sometimes, historically, both in the United States and abroad especially, it can lead to scapegoating. It can lead to some very, very ugly politics. And we can see that already. Now, my little sign says, 20 minutes is up. (laughs) So, I had so many more interesting things to talk to you about. Uh, but I think the uh, hopefully the judge and your questions uh, will will allow me to get to them. Thank you so much.
1: All right, good evening, I'm LaDaris Cordell, I'm a retired state court judge, and I am thrilled to be here to interview Robert Reich, so thank you for being here. Um, Before we talk about your book, Saving Capitalism, I'm curious about why you have set your goal in life, and these are your words, to fight the bullies, to protect the powerless, to make sure that the people without a voice have a voice.
2: Why? Uh, well, I'm short, <laughs> uh, and I've always been short. I was when I was a little boy. I was very short, <laughs> even shorter than I am now, and uh, and I and what that meant. I mean, we were most most of you uh, were children. And uh, and, cho- and you get bu- you know, there's a, there's a bullying that happens because in uh, on the playground and and when you're two and three and four uh, there are no it's not really civilization, uh, and uh, particularly when you're outside of the ambit of adults. So I got beat up, I got bullied, and I got I did get beat up, and I um, and then but I found I, I discovered a way a technique. Actually, two techniques for dealing with the bullies. One was to have arguments. So I became argumentative. And I, but, but it, I soon learned that ha- even having good arguments didn't really have much effect. So I, 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 I came up with another technique that had to do with power. I made alliances with, uh, with older boys, you know, usually just two or three, uh, who would help me keep the bullies at bay and I would summon my protectors when I needed them. It was the the original protection racket.
1: It's a good system. Uh,
2: But actually, the the end of the story is that, um, and this was actually uh, a turning point for me, uh, because in 1964, uh, one of my protectors, uh, whose name had been Mickey, uh, Mickey Schwerner, Michael Schwerner, When I was uh, just going to college, he was older, he was considerably six years older. Uh, He had already graduated from college. He had gone to Mississippi uh, to register voters and he and two other civil rights workers were tortured and murdered uh, in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And when I heard about his death uh, by the real bullies, I mean, talk about bullies. Uh, I really, I think that in retrospect, it was a turning point for me because I I felt that I, out of not only memory and respect for him, but also given my background, uh, it was very important uh, to look out for the people who were powerless, voiceless, uh, and uh, who were basically not being recognized in society.
1: So I found, and maybe this is a shocker to you, I found your book, Saving Capitalism, did you know it's a thriller? It's it is really a thriller. Yeah. It is a thriller. It, it's it's a, thriller. A, thriller. a thriller. So in the first 150 pages, you detail everything that is wrong with capitalism in America today. I found myself getting more and more agitated as I read about all of the injustices. And I kept wondering, how is this going to end? Um, where is he taking me? And then, you take the final 36 pages of the book and you talk about how it is that capitalism can be saved for the many. So I want to start with some of your solutions. You predict that a third political party, a countervailing power, will emerge if the Democratic and Republican parties don't cease their dependency on big business and Wall Street. So, is the Tea Party one of those countervailing powers? And is that why the outsiders in both parties are doing well in the polls?
2: Well, I I say in the book, uh, and and I wrote the book really before uh, anybody had heard about uh, uh, Donald Trump or Ben Carson or Bernie Sanders or any of the so-called outsiders. But I say in the book that given the logical trajectory that we are going in, the, the, the big difference... And tension in American politics in coming years will be less about Democrats versus Republicans and more about establishment versus anti-establishment. And, that, uh, and I think that the big, big uh, choice before us is in future years is not going to be, be uh, between liberals and conservatives. It will be between right-wing populism uh, and left-wing populism. And I think right-wing populism, both of them are angry. Uh, both of them take on the so-called ruling establishment. But I think right-wing populism uh, does a lot of scapegoating and it's very authoritarian. It's basically, follow me. I'm strong enough and big enough and powerful enough. Uh, and I think left-wing populism uh, is, has, is, it comes out of a much more reformist tradition, such as Teddy Roosevelt in the Progressive Era, Uh, such as the early Jacksonians in the 1930s, 1830s.
1: Well, you you also opine that the emergence of a new third party will not occur, in your words, smoothly or easily because, and once again from the book, the moneyed interests have too much at stake to passively allow countervailing power to reemerge. So are you saying that's going to be a revolution?
2: no i don't think we don't you know we only did revolution once i don 't think we, we're going to do it again um, no i 'm very optimistic because uh, if you look back historically, what we do when capitalism gets off track uh, is we put ideology aside, we roll up our sleeves, we get on with what has to be done and I think the closest parallel to what we are seeing today uh, is probably the period roughly between eighteen ninety five and 1903, uh, where you had huge gap in income and wealth. You had urban squalor, uh, you had uh, corruption, you know, the uh, robber barons, uh, the, the, the lackeys who worked for the robber, would, would literally take sacks of money and deposit them on the desks of pliant legislators. Uh, you had uh, uh, problems that were so visible to so many people finally. That when you had an opportunity, when the country had an opportunity, and Teddy Roosevelt came along, he was, he'd simply said, okay, he simply allowed it to happen. All of this progressive and populist impulse uh, broke through, uh, and the reformers uh, did, their, they began their work. I mean, they didn't finish their work, at least that phase of it, until the 1930s.
1: The Supreme Court's conservative majority, in the case of Citizens United, declaring that corporations are people, too, has placed big money squarely in the campaign finance business. Now, I agree with you in your book where you write that Citizens United is a terrible decision. You write that the court must reverse itself. So how realistic is it that with the current composition of the court, you think it will happen and happen in our lifetime?
2: Uh, well, I don't know about our lifetimes. Some people here in this audience are, are younger than others. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think that, uh, you know, in my view, uh, there are three Supreme Court cases that are probably the worst in history. One is Citizens United. The other is Dred Scott. Uh, the third is maybe Bush v. Gore. I don't know. Or, pay, take, Plessy versus, or Plessy versus, versus Ferguson. Ferguson. Yeah. Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, uh, there's some pretty bad ones, but, but of those four, uh, two of them, come from a, a contemporaneous Supreme Court. But remember, only f- it's a slim majority. I mean, Anthony Kennedy uh, on that Citizens United case, uh, he uh, just a few days ago he gave a le- an interview uh, to the, uh, uh, the dean of Harvard uh, Law School, uh, Martha Minow, uh, in which he said that one of the premises of that case was that we would have full disclosure of all sources of campaign finance and that hasn't happened. And that has, uh, now he didn't say, but it certainly implied, he strongly implied that that has led him to at least not, think harder about his decision. All you need is him to change his vote. Uh, I do not believe, generally speaking, that a president should have a litmus test for a Supreme Court nominee but in the case of Citizens United, I think the next president should say, I am only going to nominate somebody who is absolutely pledged to reverse Citizens United.
4: We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this.
0: And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show.
1: Let's talk drugs. Uh, Intellectual property is a huge moneymaker for the pharmaceutical industry because Congress has repeatedly changed the rules on patents. So you call the patenting of drugs temporary monopolies. How do we bust these monopolies, especially in light of pay-for delay
2: well, what I, what I try, what I try to do in the book, and and the judge is, is pointing to one chapter where I look at property. Uh, I, I basically lay out in the first uh, five or six chapters the building blocks of capitalism, of which property is one, contract is one, uh, bankruptcy is one, uh, market power, monopolies are uh, is one, and and ask how over the last thirty-five years have those building blocks been altered. Uh, wittingly or unwittingly by the compounding of, uh, of great political power and wealth, uh, big corporations and, and also Wall Street. Uh, and with regard to pharmaceuticals and patents, it's pretty clear uh, that there has been a, a radical change in the law. For example, you point to uh, pay for delay. Uh, in most countries, and up until about 15 years ago in the United States, it was illegal for proprietary pharmaceutical companies to pay generic manufacturers to delay their introduction of generic versions of the proprietary drug when the patent was finished or exhausted. Uh, now, but in, that, in this country over the last 15 years, it's, it's now legal and you have these proprietary companies essentially paying these generic companies to delay the introduction of generic drugs. That is costing us. A lot of money. Estimates are about three and a half billion a year, but uh, it's very, very difficult to estimate exactly. Uh, but that's a, a, a kind of a redistribution upward from us, all of us, to uh, the top executives and major shareholders of pharmaceutical companies. Uh, that is, uh, that's a decision that was made, but there was almost no public knowledge or public decision, uh, discussion about it.
1: So when you say it's costing us, you're meaning that... Consumers. Uh, right, most of, uh, we're uh, most not able us. to get these pharmaceuticals at lower prices. Yes, and there, in fact, uh,
2: uh, there are a number of decisions that were made uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, some of us tried to get pharmaceuticals from Canada for a while because they were lower cost. Uh, that has been stopped. Uh, I remember when I was at the Federal Trade Commission, it was illegal for proprietary... Uh, companies to advertise uh, pharmaceuticals that could only be obtained by prescription on the theory that why would you want to advertise it because it can only be by prescription it's doctors that prescribe well that ban was lifted and we we now know why because people are influenced they go to doctor and they say I heard I want you to prescribe that well that also increases indirectly drug costs, because it means that the, far, the physician is prescribing something that may not be exactly right, but it, is, it may be more expensive. And
1: that's the advertising, which that's is very that's unique
2: to this country. Exactly.
1: So let's talk Silicon Valley. The rise in the power and the influence of the Silicon Valley tech industry, it's been rapid, it's been phenomenal, and I think in some instances very scary. So you note that Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, have a platoon of lobbyists in Washington. And I just want to quote what you, your numbers here. In 2013, Apple spent $3.3 million on lobbying. Amazon, $3.4 million. Facebook, $6.4 million. Microsoft, $10.4 million. And Google, $15.8 million. Why do you believe that these companies should be reined in? So aren't these companies making life more convenient for all of us? Driverless cars, deliveries by drones, and their ability to connect all of us in the world in just a matter of seconds. So what's the problem? Can
2: I make it very clear? I love Silicon Valley. <laughs> I, I, love, I love high technology. Uh, the only point I, I think that, that, that bears making along these lines is that when you have a monopoly over a network, that is a common uh, platform or portal that everybody is using because everybody else is using. That needs to be scrutinized the same way any other monopoly needs to be scrutinized. It may be perfectly fine. It may be that the benefits way outweigh the costs, but it may also create market power that could be misused. And we, have in, we used to have in this country a tradition of looking at all forms of monopoly power and at least, again, scrutinizing it, asking, is it, is it, do the benefits outweigh the costs?
1: You write that capitalism depends on trust. So if the system is so rigged against the have-nots, as you assert in your book, why do so many have-nots continue to vote for candidates who support this rigged system? Why do people who are struggling economically continue to vote against their own best interests?
2: Well, are you applauding because they're voting against their own best interests? <laughs> uh, I, I think, it's a, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. I think part of the answer uh, is that they have been convinced that their enemies or the people who are really responsible for them not doing as well as they think they should be doing uh, are either immigrants or minorities or they are foreigners or they are some other group. That is, there's there's a kind of a politics of divisiveness that is going on. Uh, And uh, there are also social issues and cultural issues that are very divisive. And I think that people uh, of the sort that I confronted in my tour over the last three three weeks, uh, many of them uh, certainly are beginning to see that the game is rigged or beginning to fear and feel that somehow there's some fundamentally unfair thing going on in terms of the organization of the political economy. Uh, but they still are nervous about these kinds of divisions, and it's not clear how they're going to vote. But I'll tell you something that I've noticed. Uh, The Republicans are, in this election cycle, talking more about inequality and talking more about uh, a stacked deck or a rigged system than I have ever heard them before. Hillary Clinton, when she announced her candidacy several months ago, she announced it by saying that the deck is stacked in favor of those at the top. Now, I've never heard a major establishment candidate begin a campaign with those words. Her husband, I was there in 1992 when she and her husband launched their 1992 campaign. No way in the world Bill Clinton would have said anything of the sort. Uh, So what is happening is that even notwithstanding Uh, those cultural and social divisions that may trump...
1: So to speak.
2: So to speak. (laughs) Uh, The the economic issues, uh, still uh, those economic issues are beginning to surface. Hmm.
1: So let's talk about what people are worth. You write that there are people who work and who are poor and that there are people who don't work who are rich and that the non-working rich are viewed by so many of us being of more worth than the working poor. Why do the 46 million working poor in this country see themselves as worth only what they earn?
2: Well, that too is an, is, is, uh, is an interesting question. I, uh, we do see the emergence. Uh, 30 or 40 years ago, we did not have a large group of people who were working full-time and poor. Most of the people in this country who were poor were not working. They were either thrown out of the labor force, they were unemployed, they were disabled, for whatever work, whatever reason they were not working. And our entire system of welfare and our entire system of, of assistance was based and premised around the idea that these people could not work. But now, We have a a very large, of that 46 million, a large, large percentage of them are working full-time, many of them on two or three jobs, many of them more more than 40 hours a week, and yet they're still poor. Now that signals to me that there's something misaligned, there's something wrong somewhere here. Uh, Now we also have simultaneously the emergence of a larger, but nowhere near as large, but a a, a growing group of people who have never worked, Uh, but they are wealthy by virtue of being from families and they are heirs. That's not bad, I'm not blaming them, and I don't want to be heard to be blaming them. But both groups, the the emergence of both groups, the working poor and the non-working rich, uh, are antithetical to some extent to the kind of meritocratic ideal on which the nation is based, that you are, you know, people should work, they should be able to get ahead, everybody who works, Uh, should be able to be out of poverty, uh, and everybody who is able-bodied should be working.
1: And another reason why people are so angry, working three or four jobs but still can't find a way to make it.
2: Well, they're frustrated, uh, and that frustration leads to anger, uh, but they do internalize. You pointed to something a moment ago, Your Honor. May I call you Your Honor?
1: Oh, absolutely. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: Yeah. And, and, and that, uh, is, that, is, that is also relatively new. Uh, when I interviewed somebody for a, a movie that, uh, that I, I worked on a couple of years ago, uh, a worker who was trying to decide whether to join a union, uh, he said to me, and I, it's there in the movie, and it was very moving at the time to me, he said, uh, I don't think I'm going to vote for a union because uh, I don't think I'm worth any more than what I'm earning, about $11 an hour, because I don't have the brains. Uh, and I, what, was, what, was, what was touching to me about that is that if he had lived and worked 30 or 40 years before, he would probably have been earning more, adjusted for inflation, or or adjusted for a constant dollar, because he would have been a member of a union, and he would not have said, he would not have internalized personal blame by saying, well, I don't have a brain, and therefore I'm not worth that much.
1: Well, so let, let's change the pace a little and let's do a saving capitalism lightning round.
2: A lightning round. A
1: lightning round. So I'd, I'd like you to grade A to F the following leaders on how effective they are or will be in saving capitalism for the many. All right. Can I explain up, my, vo- my vote, sure my, you my can. grading? Sure, you, you my can explain system. your grade, yes, all right. Um, okay, Elizabeth Warren.
2: Uh, a-. minus. All right. Now, I, I, I think that uh, I think she's done a lot uh, to help bring these issues to the fore, and she's very concerned about them, and she, uh, she also has, is, is an activist, in the best sense of that term. Uh, I don't give her an A because she chickened out from running for president.
1: Wow. <laughs> Okay, next up, Donald
2: Trump. Uh, I, I think he earns a solid D. And I, <laughs> I, 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 what, what I, I, I think the problem is that when, when he, anybody who's running for president who blames, uh, whether it's Mexicans or Muslims or any other group, uh, and lets the people of this country wallow in that kind of blame, it legitimizes a certain hatefulness that is extremely, Dangerous. It's one thing if he wants to be Donald Trump and not run for president and blame Mexicans uh, for pillaging and raping and 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 doing all those things, uh, but it is different. If you are in the public arena as a candidate for president of the United States, you don't say those kinds of things. You are really, uh, you are you are you are demeaning the public, and you are actually inciting some very nasty politics.
1: Bernie Sanders.
2: Uh, well, I'd give, I'd give Bernie Sanders uh, a, a B in terms of, maybe a C plus in terms of effectiveness, but I'd give him an A in terms of truth-telling. Now, the reason I'd give him a, 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 a relatively lower grade for effectiveness is that uh, I've learned over the years that people cannot hear if you don't, speak to them in a language and in a way that invites them to hear. And so the use of the term socialist uh, is so scary to a generation of people that grew up uh, when we were fighting uh, the Soviet Union uh, that that's an un- it's just unnecessary. I wish he wouldn't do that. And I think he could also lighten up a little bit. <laughs> Ted Cruz. I think the audience speaks for itself.
4: We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer
5: of Commonwealth Club right after this.
0: And now back to the Michelle Miao show.
1: Hillary Clinton.
2: Um, I'd give Hillary uh, a, a, a B uh, on uh, kind of affecting and uh, and earning the public's trust. I think that she still uh, appears to many people to be too close. Uh, to the establishment, big money. Uh, people are worried about uh, issues that uh, continue to dog her. Why she didn't come out right away uh, on those emails and just reveal everything and just do it in a in a very very big and and an obvious way? I don't understand. I'd give her uh, an A minus on policies. I think her policies are quite good and her experience is extremely good.
1: Okay. Uh- President
2: Obama? Uh, I would give President Obama um, an A minus uh, in terms of policies. I think the Affordable Care Act will go down historically as an extraordinarily important step. It's not where we ought to be. I mean, I think that uh, we ought to be where most other advanced nations are, and that is with a single-payer system of (laughs) health care. But I I think given the uh, deck that was dealt him in terms of uh, his political opponents uh, and also the economy, I mean, he, remember, we we so quickly forget where the economy was when he entered office. I mean, we were on the edge of what could have been another Great Depression. And I think he deserves great credit for helping avoid that. Let me just say one other thing about him, because I've, I've, I've got to know him fairly well, not as well as I've known some other uh, presidents, Bill Clinton, for example. I have never met somebody occupying the Oval Office or even near the Oval Office who is as even-tempered and whose ego is under such control. I mean, you know, most of the time, to run for president, you've got to be, to some extent, a pathological narcissist. <laughs> Uh, uh, he, he is not, I mean, he really is normal and, and he's, and he's very, very smart. The U.S. Supreme Court. Well, I'd, I'd give the five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court uh, a failing grade. I, I really would. I think that they've, they've done a great deal of damage and we could, uh, Your Honor, you know more than I do about the intricacies of some of their decisions, but not only the decisions we've talked about, uh, but also the Shelby decision, uh, I think, you know, which just ripped the guts out of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 for reasons that are, to me, and I've read that decision several times, incomprehensible.
1: Um, What is going to happen to the U.S. debt when interest rates go up?
2: Uh, interest rates are going up, and although you know, I would say the chances of the Fed uh, effectively raising interest rates in December are about eighty-five percent probability right now. Uh, and by by the way, economic forecasters exist to make astrologers look good. <laughs> Nobody knows. Uh, but if interest rates go up, uh, there, I, I think it's going to hurt the economy uh, because I don't think the economy is nearly uh, as robust as some of the data suggests. That is, unemployment is now down to 5%, uh, and we had a very good month last month, but we still have millions of people, uh, inordinate, in but much, much higher than normal uh, at this point in a recovery, so-called, uh, number of people who are working part-time who would rather be working full-time. And we have a huge number. We have something in the order of 3 to 5 million people who are too discouraged even to look for work because they have not been able to find a job. Uh, our labor participation rate, that is the, the, the percentage of people who are of working age who are actually in the workforce, is down to the lowest it has been still, the lowest it's been since 1978. Uh, so, and there's no sign of any inflation. Uh, Really, you can look anywhere under your bed. There's no inflation. Uh, And so I would, uh, I I think it's a mistake for the Fed to do what it is going to do.
1: Why a national minimum wage of $15? New York, LA, San Francisco costs more than the central areas, shouldn't wages be tiered?
2: I I think there's a good uh, argument. In fact, right now, we have a national minimum wage that is much lower than the minimum wage in uh, most of your higher cost and higher living standard states. Uh, So states can still raise the minimum wage to whatever they want above the federal. But the federal minimum wage right now is $7.25, and uh, that is uh, historically very, very low. That's about 20% below what it was adjusted for inflation in 1968. If you just took the minimum wage in 1968 and you adjusted for inflation, it would be uh, $10.60 today. Uh, And if you wanted to make a further adjustment, because the American workforce was not nearly as productive in 1968 as it is now. And I don't mean just high-wage workers. Even low-wage workers were not surrounded by nearly as much equipment. If you made, if you adjusted for productivity, you could make a good argument that the minimum wage ought to be about $12, $13 an hour, maybe higher uh, nationally. But, but I think that, I think that this is also a moral issue. It's not just an economic issue. I think that we should not have a country in which somebody is working full time and still in poverty.
1: So we have time for one final question, and and I do want to tell you that I think you are a national treasure. So thank you for all that you do, truly. So our final question, actually it appears to be a compound question. At Dartmouth, it was rumored that you went on a date with then Hillary Rodham, the future Hillary Clinton who was an undergraduate at Wellesley. Question, did you kiss and will you tell?
2: (laughs) Well, here's the, in 19, in in 2008, in the election, 2008, I was called by a reporter for the New York Times, who said, uh, we've come across a collection of her letters from Wellesley. And in one of the letters, she mentions that she went on a date with you. And is there anything that you can tell me about that date that might shed light on how she would perform as a president? (laughs) And uh, first of all, I couldn't really remember the date. And I thought that would be bad form if I didn't remember the date. Uh, But I asked him a little bit about what the letter said. And I did, (laughs) it came back. And then I I answered the question with my, my tongue firmly planted in my cheek. I said, well, we went uh, out to a movie and she wanted an inordinate amount of butter on her popcorn. <laughs> and then there was a long silence <laughs> on the other... <laughs> and I said, are, are you still there? I thought he might have hung up and he said, uh, no, I, I'm j- yes, I'm just writing this down. That's all I'm gonna say.
1: That's enough. Thank you, Robert Rice.
3: Clearly you've all enjoyed tonight's uh, program brought to you by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. We'd like to again thank uh, Robert Rice, author of Saving Capitalism for the Many, Not the Few, retired Judge LaDoris Cordell, our audience here in Campbell, and for those of you joining us on the web or the radio.
4: Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemiao.com. See you all next week.
0: the Michelle Miaz Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.